Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Tokyo on Fire. Today is February 13th, 2015, and I am Timothy Langley. Today I'm joined by colleagues Michael Chuchek and Dr. Nancy Snow. Michael Chuchek is adjunct fellow at Temple University Japan's Institute of Contemporary Asian Studies. He is also the well-known author of Shisaku, one of the foremost blogs covering politics in Japan. Dr. Nancy Snow is two-time Fulbright fellow, and she is now at Keio University under an Abe Fellowship where she is writing a book on Japan's nation branding. For those of you new to Tokyo on Fire, this is our second installment. Last week, we talked about Japan's military collective defense, and today's burning issue is on TPP and Japan's agricultural lobby. This weekly podcast streams from YouTube and is also available on a download from iTunes. First of all, what is TPP? This is a huge issue. Essentially, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is an ambitious free trade agreement to encompass the countries of the Pacific Rim. Currently, only 12 countries are involved, and the haggling over issues such as tariffs and market entry, intellectual property, and patent treatments is under full steam. But the stated vision is harmonization to unlock the future growth of the countries involved. But the region encompasses 44% of the world's population and 40% of the world's economic growth. So sauntering around here obviously creates waves, particularly since it is the United States pushing the most for closure on agreements and schedules for accommodations. So again, this is huge. Critics point out that the secrecy surrounding negotiations and the exclusion into the negotiations of everyone except large multinational corporations and representatives of the government bodies. So the adage that we are here from the government and here to help you raises concerns. Still, it is a huge block and there could be reasonable economies of scale with better cooperation. If successful, these original 12 countries will encourage more economies to join the pact. This brings us to the third arrow of Shinzo Abe's economic platform known as Abenomics. The first arrow, monetary easing, included massive plays on the currency. The second arrow, fiscal reform, included huge government spending. These indeed generated the desired effects, but they're not very long-lasting without the third arrow, which is structural reform. As yet untouched, structural reform is required to address the faltering economy that has been teetering for 20 years or so. Essentially, the third arrow is about opening up the market, releasing the restrictions on, of regulations and heavy government oversight on matters such as immigration, patent and copyright, medical, legal, and financial services. And while not a huge component, at least as numbers are concerned, spiritually, any touching of the agricultural component is basically a taboo. So now we're talking about agricultural reform, and this is what our discussion revolves around today. Once again, I'm joined by my commentators, Michael Chuchek and Dr. Nancy Snow. Michael, what do you say? Well, we've seen this week this signing of a big agreement regarding JA Zenchu, the Japan Agricultural Cooperatives, you know, the top of the pyramid, they call it. The agriculture employs about two million people, and then those, those farmers are organized into cooperatives, and those cooperatives are under another set of cooperatives. And then finally at the top is this pyramid structure of this, this apex, was J.A. Zenchu, which serves as basically the lobbying arm of the agricultural community. Uh, but it also is a huge bank and a huge insurance company. It's all these various parts put together of turning the agricultural community into an economic community. What the government is trying to do is break that apart, break it into pieces, take away some of the power that it has over the political system. And ostensibly, if you take away the top, then suddenly the parts below it will start to move in a more independent fashion. They'll be easier to control by the government, but also they'll be able to experiment. And that is the way that the government wants us to look at these reforms, that it has opened up for experimentation some kind of, of heretofore 
restricted and confined uh, way of doing agriculture here in Japan. When you look at the numbers though, agriculture really only contributes about 1%, a little bit less than 2% to the overall GDP of Japan. Why is it such a big issue? It's been a big issue basically for two reasons. One is, it is that the current map of the entire country's political districts is heavily favored in rural areas. The, the rural districts are sometimes over, overrepresented by a factor of two to one. And in fact, the uh, Supreme Court has said that this overemphasis on rural areas is unconstitutional. It takes away people's rights to be equal under the law. The second reason, of course, is that agriculture is very, is, has been protected by this lobby. And protection means that it's going to run up against trade agreements. And in this case, the most important trade partner, the United States. The United States agricultural lobbies of it has agricultural lobbies of its own. And they have been pushing on US policymakers, both in Congress and in the United States federal government, for decades to open up Japan's markets, open up Japan's agriculture to American products. And they see or have seen the Jay Zenchu formula, this, in, this structure, as a crucial barrier to further integration of US and Japan markets on the agricultural products level. Doesn't this sound like a broken record to you? I mean, we've been here before. Um, it first started out with automobiles and then high tech and computers and it went on to beef products and it just, it just continues to go on. Broaching the, 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 the walls to get into the Japanese market to produce um, uh, you know, some sort of uh, collaboration with, with trade, it seems to work in, in one direction only, and I think that's what irritates not just the United States, but a lot of J Japan's trading partners as well. So why is uh, this such a big issue, J.A., Zenchu, uh, for Abe? I mean, he's got lots of other things that are going on too, doesn't he? Sure, he has lots of other things to do, but he has not had that many wins recently. Sure, he won in the election in December, but in terms of policies, he's been seen as being extremely conservative, as being extremely timid even in his approach. And this has certainly been the impression by from the point of view of international investors of his third arrow, the structural reforms, that it's always too little, always uh, the basic reaction internationally is, huh, what was that? And Given the symbolism of agriculture, both in terms of its political power and its power to mess up relations with the United States and other uh, agricultural producers such as Australia, most importantly, but elsewhere in the region that want to export to Japan more of their products, the destruction of Jay Zenchu is a big symbolic win for, for mm. Abe. Whether that's a really a win or not is what most people are now here in Tokyo talking about. Yeah. Now, destruction, though, sounds different from reform because destruction is going to impact people's lives. You can talk about a lobby, but then this is also affecting the lives of people who have been used to this protectionist market for so many years. It is a broken record. I think the difference is the rise of these other economies mm -hmm. in the region. This is a big threat now. And so it's all part of the globalization process. And I hear globalization all the time, but it still strikes me as very rhetorical. And most people will tell you privately this third arrow is just going nowhere. It's, it's rarely discussed. So I, I'm glad that we're at least addressing it. The other point you made too in your opening, Tim, about the spiritual element of this. When I first studied Japan, it was sort of the rice people and people of the land. And that still comes into play with the politics, as Michael pointed out, with this enormous influence from the rural areas. And yet a lot of the pictures of Japan are really focused on Tokyo and the yes. exciting cities. And so it, it, I would love to see more of the people involved in this conversation 
because I think TPP and the, it, it's just meaningless to a lot of people. And again, it goes back to this very protected market and lobbyists who, who feel as if nothing is really going to change here. But if nothing changes, we know one thing, we can guarantee Japan will fall further and further behind. Mm -hmm. One of the things I like about this issue is that it really touches a lot of things that, uh, that concern us. And I think it's one of the reasons why it is the issue for Tokyo on Fire. And what I mean by that is, <clears throat> like you said, Michael, the, the election districts, the, the weight of the cities over the rural areas, and also the heavy reliance uh, on the LDP, traditionally on the agricultural vote, and that somehow shifted. And it also, it's a, a completely different issue now, but the, the depopulation of the rural areas, areas and, and uh, uh, some way to encourage people to stay in, in their hometowns and to continue to have their jobs and to have children, this is, um, you know, what a, what a hurdle, what a challenge for the prime minister. He's got to do something because the country is just gradually sinking. I think in theory, TPP is a great idea, harmonization. You know, have these economies who, who share an ocean, who have um, lots of trade relations to be, you know, it doesn't need to be one-on-one -on -one tit for tat, but harmonization means if you're giving us something on, uh, for example, agricultural products, we'll give you something on technology. So maybe tariff equalization or, or market opening or, or market access, for example. But uh, this, this symbolism of, of taking something like the agricultural lobby, it's been in law for, since 1954. And so like the rural areas are, are basically guided by that. So um, I think it's a, it's a great kind of anchor issue because it touches a lot of other areas that seem to be unrelated, but they're, they're intricately entwined. Well, Abe wants to get a lot of of mileage out of attacking J.A. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he's used some really, really violent language saying that he's the drill bit boring through the hard rock of resistance against his reforms. Uh, it's, it's, it, he wants to be seen as a tough guy. And it's true that it's unusual and odd that the LDP, which has needed the, the rural vote mm -hmm. so desperately to stay in power, and certainly, and that's true even today, uh, in terms of their distribution of uh, power, that they would go after their own base is a very, very powerful message for the outside world. Look, I'm taking on the people who have been our bedrock support. I'm really trying to change this country is the story that he tells. But Nancy's really, point was really good in when she said, that, well, first you talk, talked about destruction. And mm -hmm. a lot of people mm -hmm. are wondering when you're taking on J.A. Zenchu and you're taking on the, the responsibilities of TPP, whether it's creative destruction, that right. something good will come of it, mm -hmm. or is it just destructive destruction? That what's going to happen is that Japanese agriculturalists, they're 66 years of age, that's the median age, they're just gonna abandon their fields because they will be competing against agribusiness from countries which have far greater land area and are able to do mechanized agriculture. But there won't be anybody moving in and taking over and trying to make Japan an agricultural power, even though it has good soil, good water, uh, excellent uh, in terms of its, its climate for all kinds of exportable products, but because of land use, and that's not addressed by this reform, because of various uh, systems that exist in terms of finance, and in terms of providing seed, machinery, etc., that will not go, be touched by these reforms, the chance that creative destruction will come out is actually a big question. Um, I don't know. It could also be kabuki that there's a lot of movement, but behind the scenes, not really much happens. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to note, the median age of farmers are 66 years old. That tells you that a lot of them are older than 66, and a lot of them are younger than 66, but the median age being 66, that tells you that's a dying industry. And the vast majority of farmers are not full-time farmers. 
they have another job and they plant some, some, some rice or they tend the field uh, during the day or maybe during you know, the, the, uh, the weekends or something like that, but that's not their full-time job. The whole culture, and the thing that's really funny about this is that Japan excels in certain things, in food, in food culture, in, in technology, in, the, in these intricacies of, of craftsmanship. And this one industry that has been so protected for so long, it just looks retarded. Mm. Yeah, but who's going to replace these, these 66 years old? Because I, I don't hear from any students or young people that they're just dying to go into the agricultural business chicken, here. Chicken farming. Or... <laughs> I mean, that, that's sort of a, an issue. It, it happened in the United States, going from an agrarian society to then all this movement of people to the cities and you had these deserted villages. But we, we always used to sort of play up the values of the village, that these were sort of more moralistic <laughs> people and trustworthy and, um, and that the city, it was, there was the anonymity and it sort of took away from the trust. But I, uh, I do wonder with this agricultural reform, what are the ties to all of the debate and disruption that went into first NAFTA and then the World Trade Organization, because that's my era. I was working for the government when we were pushing NAFTA in the 90s under President Clinton in Washington. And of course, uh, there was a lot of pushback because it had to do with the United States sort of dominating that market as well. And, and the issue of keeping the um, the public voice out of right. the the entire negotiating process, and I think here too with TPP and ag reform, it looks so secretive. It's just as you said, kabuki. It's uh, it's sort of dancing around, and it's really hard to sort of figure out what what are the tangible good things to come out of this. If it's a pocketbook issue, it makes sense. I mean, I would like to have prices, I'd like to have more competition here just in buying my food. But the nation brand element is that Japan is benefited by the reputation of very high quality with around food safety, even post Fukushima. So we're coming up on the four year anniversary now, March 11th. And that has not really damaged that that impression, that global impression of the Japanese really have the uh, better food quality. Well, ever since um, I've been studying Japan, this has been uh, a long time, the, the issue of food security has always been prominent in, in their foreign policy, in their internal dynamics. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, is that they cannot be uh, self-secure in, they, they can't support themselves in, in food. They have to import the vast majority of the food that they consume. So this this idea of, of protecting this this industry, I think it's it's seen uh, its time. I think it does need to change. I also think that harmonization in in the region is a is a good idea. But like the other agreements that um, have have largely been propelled by the United States. I think that there's a suspicion there and there's a resistance to want to go along because like we're from the government, we're here to help you, you know, like hell you are. And I think that there's that, there's that background there, that, that suspicion that uh, although it might look good right now, there's, there's another hook in it. And one of the things that raises this, this tension is the fact that these negotiations, number one, are basically closed negotiations. And the representatives, the, the people who are pushing it, it's like in, in uh, Obamacare, it's, it's, the, the, it's the people who are in a position to actually develop the intelligence and know the market and do the market research, they, they are in the big companies. And everybody else is excluded. You have uh, government representatives. And that's the same pattern that's being, being handled here. Number two is that uh, this is moving very rapidly now. Mm. And as this thing is, is proceeding forward, now we hear this, this idea of let's, let's move it on fast track. Let's move this fast track authority so we can bypass Congress and give the President of the United States authority to sign off on these, these trade agreements. And the, the interesting thing about that is that international uh, agreements that are, are signed by the President of the United States supersede national law mm -hmm. in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. So fellows who are, or companies who are trying to avoid 
tax issues or, or regulations that are really strict in the United States or in certain states of the United States, they would apply through a, a trade treaty and get a free ride or, or get certain um, uh, preferential treatment. And I think that's the real danger that, uh, that people are, they really can feel it. And uh, so I, I sense that there's a real danger. I, I, I see that uh, this is um, not moving along according to to plan. In defense of the, that methodology, however, you have to admit that just having 12 national governments trying to come to some kind of agreement and to trust each other, each one of them is looking in 12 directions. And so you, if you think of all the different connections that, that need to be worked out and all the different meetings that have to happen, the thought that the national government that's sitting there cannot talk without consulting back home, okay, is this what we can, can we really do? No one would ever come to the table. So the fact that it's secretive, that it excludes a lot of people, yeah, or else nobody would get any movement. So one has to cut them a bit of slack. And certainly that is, that tension, at least within the United States community, uh, is, is clear that the lobbies in the United, that lobby the United States government particularly uh, consumer lobbies, don't see TPP, don't see any of these kinds of agreements, don't see fast-track authority as pushing forward the uh, national goodwill and the national, uh, the health and the welfare of everybody. Here in Japan, the, the, the situation is a bit different, but yes, uh, there, are, there are consumer groups that do try to make this into a consumer issue, particularly on the, the food safety issue that uh, Dr. Snow mentioned, but really what's the, the crux of the political issue here is, is Shinzo Abe really a reformer? And he is trying to show that he is by taking on something that is traditionally pro-LDP and a, a big base for them, uh, and has always been on the agenda of the United States or any other country coming to Japan saying, can you get do something about agriculture? Because let's face it, your agricultural system cannot provide the food, the calories that your people need. And we have the land, we have the, uh, the, the machinery, let's make a deal. And the, there's never been a deal that's been, been struck. A few side agreements here and there and bringing it all into the TPP is some way for all the countries in the region to come to some agreement. Now, the real issue for Abe himself, though, is he is on record as supporting the small village, the rice agriculture mm -hmm. view of Japan. Mm -hmm. He's a traditionalist. Right. He's trying to get mileage out of violating what are his own professed beliefs. Mm. And I don't know, if I were a, someone in the rural areas, and there are elections coming up in April. And I've heard all my life from Shinzo Abe telling me, when I look into the rice paddies of my family, uh, where they reflected the lights coming off the fishing boats, this was reflected in the, the, the water of the rice paddies. And he has all these wonderful images that appear in his writing of the agricultural village and the agricultural life on using rice as a basic metaphor of unity among the Japanese people. If he turns around and says, yeah, but I, you know, actually I'm not that, he's gonna lose the rural vote, but it doesn't mean he's gonna get the urban vote because people will say, look at you. Mm -hmm. you, you've been telling us all your life this story mm -hmm. about how much you love the Japanese village and now you're no longer, you're no longer on, on the same wavelength, you've changed. So it's a real, this is, they, they, this may look like a small reform from the exterior, but for Abe, it's a big challenge and it's, and it's really a big bet. Mm -hmm. Well, sure, I, I admire him for, for taking on the challenge. I mean, uh, there are certain lobbies here in Japan that are really, really powerful. Agriculture is probably one of the most powerful uh, and it's been instituted in law you know, for since 1954. So it's, it's really well entrenched. And it's not that the stomachs are longer or that the snow is different. I mean, this is, this is something that's ingrained into the, into the culture here. But I, um, 
I'm remembering what you said about, um, you know, the agreements for having all of these people sitting around and, and making agreements. And I think one of the things that um, distracts from that is uh, a faith in government and, and a belief that government is protecting you and doing the right thing and, and for your future. And I think that that sense probably exists stronger in Japan among Japanese voters than it does in the United States. I think people are always suspicious of the government and stay out of my life and you're too intrusive. And I, I think that, you know, this secrecy doesn't bode well for getting, getting them to, to, they can close the agreement, but getting it into implementation is, is completely another matter. And on that point, you saw how lightning fast uh, uh, the Japan Agriculture Association collapsed after meeting with uh, Mr. Suga and, and the prime minister. They had you know, a series of meetings and they basically said, okay. And that's a hint that yes, we'll agree now, but uh, we'll deal with this fight later. May I say something about the, are there any public opinion polls looking at uh, whether or not the public considers this a high priority, this reform of the ag lobby. I wonder about that. And two, I recall with Obama in 2008, and he was uh, just prior, well, right after the election with the worry of the collapse of our own economy in the U.S. and the bailout of not only the Wall Street financial people, but also Detroit. Yes. And the there and he used the bully pulpit to explain to the American people, and he got a lot of support because he was able to actually shape it in the form of a narrative about protecting this industry now is part of who we are as a people. It's mm -hmm. it's part of our past. It's we can't let it collapse, and and that is something that seems to suggest to me that maybe Abe can have it. Maybe he can do a speech that's both and, that I'm in favor, I'm the guy who gets nostalgic and emotional about the rice patties and the light on the water. And today in 2015, we need this reform. It's not taking away from who we are as Japanese. I think there's an element here of we're gonna lose part of our Japanness mm -hmm. in this process. It's not just about lobbying and secret meetings, but also about national psyche. And that's where he needs to, again, you can do a both and, that can be very persuasive, and then you go after the, well, the opponents are gonna say, and you have to address it, the two-sided refutational argument. Right. <laughs> right. But, in, but that's what, what he would say to, to that, is says, I did that this week when I gave my budget speech, which is a 45-minute speech. Hmm. He didn't do, what, what prime ministers normally do, which is an intro to the diet session at the beginning of this year. He said, I've, I just won an election. I don't have to say what I, who I am. But he does, all, all prime ministers have to give a budget speech explaining what the budget is for. And that's what he did this week. And he will say that I fulfilled your requirements. I showed myself to be a real traditionist. And at the same time, I pointed the way to the future. And I mean, if you want to read it in English, the, the, the Conte website has the, the speech I already know. translated. And it's, it's uh, of course, quite long, but uh, we have cut out of it the cheering and the bonsais from, <laughs> from the, uh, from the uh, members of the LDP, the young guys. Uh, but uh, it's there, and he'll say, look, I, it's an industry I love. I love the way Japan looks. I, I believe that there is a beautiful Japan, and that's a term, that's what he used in his first book, he called it, you know, Beautiful Japan. And he believes that, that there, it has a, a spiritual component, but a physical component, and he likes the way Japan physically is arranged. And he's saying, but it can't go on. And he points to the demographic argument about the, the median age, and he says, we just don't have young people going into agriculture, and that means that we have to do something radical, and I'm the person to do it. That's his message. Mm -hmm. I'm the person. And in a sense, he might be right. Because only an LDPer yes. could really attack this lobby. And it's Nixon to China. 
But even so, but no, the, the agriculture, no, the agriculture reform really started under the LDP and was interrupted mm -hmm. by the DPJ mm -hmm. interregnum. The, right. The, right, the LDP had, for example, set up a professionalization of agriculture that it would only help large-scale full-time farmers. Mm. And Mr. Ozawa, Ozawa, Ichiro Ozawa, the head of the uh, DPJ at the time said, great, an opportunity for us. Mm. What we'll do is we're going to make sure that anything that applies to big time, full-time farmers applies to all farmers in our mani manifesto. And that's what they did in 2009. And that was one of their vote winning claims right. that they were going to help all agriculture, which is crazy because the people who are part-timers they're part-timers. Uh -huh. you're, you're, you're not professionalizing anything, mm. but it was professionalized across the board. And now we're back in an LDP environment, in an LDP government. They can restart this process, and that looks like what he's trying to do. Well, I think we get back once again to structural reform. It's not just about agriculture. It's about a lot of different things, and there is so much pent-up demand here in the country as well as externally, we want in. We want we want to trade with you. We you know you, we are buying your cars. Why don't you buy our cars? Which is an old argument, oh, yeah. but you know medical devices, um, medicine. You know it's, you're human. I'm a human. So why don't you buy our generic drugs? Um, you know there there are so many thousands of these. For example, legal services. You know your lawyers can go to the United States and sit for the bar and pass the bar. And can can we have you know, young law students come here and do the same thing. It's just, it's a huge issue. And I think that, you know, attacking agriculture is a, is a good place to start, but it's huge. And, it, and it, if, if he doesn't get started more aggressively, it's really not going to take much traction. I was just going to say something about part-time workers, because you had me thinking about the movement to really professionalize part-timers mm -hmm. and across a lot of industries, including university teaching, so many part-time instructors. They call them freeway flyers. Uh. They, and then also, uh, because we're such a service economy now in the United States, and you have a lot of part-time employees at a Starbucks or service-type restaurants, they're now having to pay the benefits for the 20-hour-a-week people, mm -hmm. including the Obamacare you mentioned. So uh, I don't know. I'm kind of leaning a little bit to that DPJ uh, <laughs> winner. I mean, that everyone is going to have a piece of this pie. I like that. That's sort of a peaceful, beautiful Japan concept to me. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned the generic drugs issue, is that that's actually one where Japanese consumers are saying, let's not sign TPP because oh. we like our generic drugs, which are basically copies of copyrighted drugs that are available in the United States only from the big pharmaceutical companies of the United States and with a huge markup. But here they're available at a very low price because their genetics mostly produced probably in India now. Uh, Japanese consumers like that. And so there's a very the medical component, particularly generic drugs, is, is really, really something that the Abe administration doesn't want anybody to talk about, but is what everybody brings up. Well, there's so many issues that we can talk about here. For example, um, taking care of older people because the pyramid is beginning to shift. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who are bedridden, who are older, who's, who live away from their children. They live in the rural areas. The children have all gone to colleges in the big cities and then gravitated towards Tokyo. Um, and the, um, the allowance for, um, uh, for example, nurses, nurse, nurse trainers from the Philippines, which is a, a terrific export out of the Philippines, uh, that kind of um, blockage, you know, where is this going to come from? And I think there's a great fear that uh, they're going to come here and stay here, and it's going to destroy the mix of, of culture that's... that's already at play. Well, that's one of the issues for TPP in that uh, labor mobility is not addressed uh, to the extent that anybody would want. And at that point, you're, people are saying, well, uh, where is that in reform? It's not going to come through the trade agreement. Uh, what are you going to do there? And there, there is, of course, a great deal of discussion uh, in, uh, within uh, 
the LDP itself, the party in power, about what's what can be done in terms of that. But that's that's well outside the uh, the agricultural reform issue or or TPP issues. That's somewhere completely different. Uh, the, those issues, however, are all tied up. You're right in people's minds. We have old people living in rural areas. How do we get nurses to them? How do, do we, if they're old people living in rural areas, will they accept Filipinas as their, as well? You know, in the past they accepted Filipinas as as spouses. Spouses, right? <laughs> that was mm-hmm. a big issue in the in the 80s and 90s. Right. Uh, the immigration of uh, people from Southeast Asia, women, to be married to Japanese farmers. They tried that. Uh, now we're 20, 30 years down the line, and we've got a whole new set of problems, but the, the, the answer still seems to be women from the Philippines. Uh, this is all tied together in a long-term view of Japan's relationship with the world. All right. Well, I'm, I'm really curious about how Japan projects this image outside of of Japan. It's very sensitive to how people view it. It's very curious about studies of outsiders on Japanese culture and research and agricultural digs and, and things like that. Um, but this, this issue, this closed nature of, of, of um, entering into Japan with services and products, I think is something that, um, that uh, doesn't, doesn't help Japan overseas and it's um, in its foreign policy. Uh, but even if things move well, even if this, um, it's not really a destruction of the, the Japan agriculture, it's more like a, um, a structural change. I mean, it's moving from a protected um, legal entity into something of a nonprofit, and it is giving up power. And to, certain, to a certain degree, it's, it's relinquishing it's forcing the JA to relinquish the power it has over all of the cooperatives, almost 700 of them throughout the, the country. Um, so the, um, the, the way that JA is handled can only be the start because it's got to, it's got to include other, other structural reforms if it's going to have any, any hope of being successful in the minds of other people in the in the Pacific Rim. Yeah, well, opposition figures and also newspapers and, and news outlets that are usually deeply critical of uh, the Abe administration as, as their editorial stance have gone, gone to town with that very point. That, okay, so you took the apex of the pyramid off. You t- took away from JA uh, its right to receive uh, dues from the, the other cooperatives. You take away its right to oversee the accounts of other cooperatives, but the other cooperatives are still there, and the, the rest of the pyramid is left un, untouched. You've you, what you've done is taken away the the directors, and you've just left everybody else to, to fend for themselves. Yeah, fend for themselves. But when they worked out this this deal, uh, there was a great deal of acrimony in the room. But then they all went out to drink at, later. This is this is in the in the written up in the Yomine Shimbun, and at the party they said, "Well, you know, at this hearing we were supposed to say all these nasty things, but and this these are JA representatives, but you know, nothing really has changed. You know, we're we're we're, we're all going to be here." J. A. Zenchu, the twenty the apex, years from now. Yeah, they 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 actually never told us that to not to do anything. We we're not going to change the way we we act. And you say, wow, this is in the Yomiuri Shinbun. This is in the the organ of the government, basically. Mm-hmm. They, they, that's the way their their editorial stance is, and they are absolutely reporting on the pure cynicism of the participants in this conference after. The, the uh, show was over officially, all going out to drink and getting really happy about the whole thing. Well, what, what are you going to do? I mean, something drastic has to happen because otherwise this country, I mean, it's just, it's, it's shrinking, it's, it's shriveling. And I, you know, I, I really admire uh, the prime minister uh, and I think he, ha- he came up with the, the three arrows. It's, it, it's okay, it resonates. Um, the structural reforms are the most difficult. He's left that for the, the final part. I think he needs uh, an extra push to, to kind of initiate that, maybe some 
I don't know, maybe TPP is, is the push for that, but they really have to do something and they're between a rock and a hard place. Well, they also have set up themselves for, in terms of having that set of reforms, the third era reforms, not spelled out when they took power. Mm -hmm. They knew what they were going to do in terms of monetary policy, they knew what they were going to do in terms of fiscal policy, but structural reform was a blank sheet and hundreds of reforms have been suggested by Abe's various uh, commissions and various advisory bodies. And they've all been printed up and disseminated. But the whole point of the, the, the three arrows reform was that you do them all three simultaneously. But it's only been two, right. and then the last one is coming up later. And that last one really needed the other two, the fiscal, the, the fiscal boost, the monetary boost, in order to make the third arrow, which is actually makes the, the economy smaller, because when you, when you try to slim down something, it gets smaller, and try to make it more efficient, you, it gets smaller. The, the two arrows were supposed to counteract that. Well, they were shot first, so the, the expansionist phase has already happened, and it's not gonna happen anymore. Right, it's... But, and now we go to the painful part of shrinkage, and you don't have the ability to cover things up. Mm -hmm. You know, with lobbing off the top of the pyramid, I'm thinking of an iceberg metaphor. So you're sort of shaving off, making little ice cubes. It, it looks like you're doing something, but meanwhile, the, the bulk of the problem is still beneath the surface. And that's where I think Abe needs to educate the public and sort of build, move, move this inert object, <laughs> try to move it along because it, it seems to me I'm hearing that the, the first two arrows worked and then he's going to run out of time. He's not going to be in office forever. And then he can say, well, I tried to make these reforms, but we just, we just ran out of time. Mm -hmm. It just seems a little convenient. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think shaving off the top is probably good because this is where power is collected and amassed, and once we have it, we never relinquish it. And once we have it, now we can count the money and we can tell people how, how much they should pay for things, and we are going to be the repository and the protector of these. And I think that, that this, this um, the top of the pyramid becomes entitled. And I think you find that in, in the bureaucracy here as well. And it's like, it's a business, it's not, it's not farming, it's a business. And then our resources are the small farmers and the small cooperatives, and they work under our direction. And so I think it's—I think it is something really does need to happen. And take the suits out of it and let them be farmers. I think that's that's a, a, a good direction to go in. But you all have been here a long time, much longer than I have. And what is your sense of any real reform uh, taking shape here? Because it just seems that we default on this is a closed society and if they don't get it now, I mean, they've had all these years to sort of get up or get it and wake up to this decline in not just the Japanese economy, but this influence that it's had. 30 years ago, there was so much written about Japanese leadership and management and everybody was studying that yes. in business school. And so what is the attraction now, other than if you are drawn to a closed society, whereas these other members in TPP, they're really globalizing more. When, when's Japan going to get with the program mm -hmm. here is what I'm asking. Yeah, <laughs> You're I, the experts because you've been here long. You've seen these changes. Well, you can see this every day. I mean, you go into a meeting, and whether it's a, a board meeting or maybe a, a meeting of administrators or whatever, and you go into the meeting and they pass out the agenda and it's very proper and it's very timely and it starts on time and ends on time. But you always have this sneaking suspicion that it seems like everything was played out before I sat down. And I think that's pervasive throughout society and throughout the Japanese culture that you have a pre-meeting to decide what you're gonna talk about or what you're going to decide at the meeting. And those vested interests, you know, it's, it's really a pecking order that decides and that that power, it does, there's no there's no real revolutionary change that goes on through um, the hierarchy. It's you know it's it's usually um, 
age specific. So as you get older, as you've been in it longer, you hold that power until you retire or die or do something else. But usually you stay in that in that position and people, you know, acknowledge your preeminence and they just pretty much delegate their authority to you. I don't know. What do you think, Michael? I'm trying to figure out exactly what the reform does. Basically, my understanding is that Abe wants to argue that he's changing Japan. But we know that JA doesn't farm. Mm -hmm. It's a lobbying organization. It collects dues, and it had one other aspect to it, which was that it was, uh, really strangely, also a, uh, an accounting firm. And insurer. Well, the, 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 but those are, on, those are the next level down. The, the accounting function was the top. That you, they, they reviewed the accounts. Now, it's understandable when the law was written establishing JA, why they would need that, because Japan's economy was in shambles in the post-war era. And it was very important that there be some sort of organization that makes sure that at least we're growing our food. We can have free markets and everything else, but at least make sure that this thing is solid. Right. And that all these cooperatives that were set up, that their accounts, that, that, that there was no one running away with the money, that they weren't investing in, I don't know what, you know, gold futures with the money that they're supposed to be using in order to help farmers farm better. That was the real function of Jay's Enchu. So to, to condemn it in a historical sense is wrong. Okay, so now you're taking this lobbying away, they're taking away the accounting, so, but everything else remains. Okay, why was accounting significantly bad? It sounds like a good thing. Mm -hmm. And certainly there's the issue in terms of, okay, so who's going to be the accountants of the farmers now? And as we know from 2008, accounting is really important and not having accountants who can be influenced by their clients who might you know, say, well, this is actually worth something. Uh, that has going to not, that's the real change that's here. And you're saying, what? They're now giving what was a single entity with a real responsibility under the law to the accounting firms? Right. The, the second thing is the lobbying. Well, lobbying only works if you're a politician who is easily influenced. Mm -hmm. The way to stop J.A. Zenchu's uh, influence is to not listen to them. Mm -hmm. And but so this is peculiar. Aren't, why aren't the politicians being reformed? It's not lobbyists that are bad. It's the people who listen to them. That's a <laughs> that's a great point. That's a great point. How are lobbyists viewed in Japan? I, I just asked that because the word lobbyist really comes from being outside the office, working the diet or Capitol Hill mm -hmm. and meeting in the lobby, having a discussion, having a dialogue. It, it can be neutral or it can signify payola, favors, uh, fancy dinners, going out drinking, which Michael <laughs> mentioned earlier that you have this very formal meeting and then you sort of laugh about it afterwards, nothing's right. really gonna change. So I'm just wondering, when you, hear, when you use the Japanese word for lobbyist, is, is it an eye roll from people or is it just, huh, they're just advocates? Right, well I think uh, in English, the word lobbyist is rather pejorative. It's, mm -hmm. it's got more negative connotations than positive. Mm -hmm. And here in Japan, it is, is, it is really advocacy, okay. advocates. Right. And the reason why, um, and they probably, the people who are actually actively engaged in it, um, their, their power is not so much in, in advocacy, but in, uh, it's, it's kind of strange, and I think it's somewhat peculiar here in Japan, is that when people are voting, they're voting for politicians, they look up to their boss and to their, the, the elders in the community to, to tell them or to guide them on how to vote. Not everybody does it, but it's a peculiar uh, sense of collectivism that, um, that is very deeply ingrained. So, for example, if, if you're the president of the company and you have a, a large corporation and you, you say in, in subtle or maybe not so subtle ways, you know, this is my politician, this is who I'm going to vote for, and he helps our company and he helps us, 
you know, go to the schools and, and things like that, people fall in line. So his voice, since he carries so much power, it's, it's not a lot, but I mean, the, the way you, you say he carries a lot of power, that, that very um, subliminal power is very strong. And he can talk to people in the in a political area, and he can he can sway a lot of a lot of um, uh, thinking, and so he, I don't think he would consider himself a lobbyist, but he is. And similarly with JA, they represent this this massive structure of farmers. They're not all full time farmers; very few of them are full time, but they touch farming and they benefit from having this protection and being able to have you know, their books audited or preferential um, payments on, on insurance or, or lots, lots of things. But when they, when they think about, um, you know, election campaigning and, and what they're going to do, they really, maybe they don't want to be that involved, but they'll listen to what, you know, you tell me, because you're the analyst, I'm the farmer, tell me how this thing goes. And so the people at the pinnacle really do well a lot Sounds of like a guild. Yes, almost. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of Japan industry, um, traditionally, not so much right now, traditionally has been guild-like, and it mm -hmm. was originally zaibatsu. So it belonged to families who controlled mm -hmm. large swaths of, of the economy. And that's been basically moved over, but there's still, you know, if, if you're going to be selling uh, bottled drinks or beer or alcohol, there are a couple of major corporations that handle that almost exclusively. Mm. So it's uh, more close to... Uh, it's not quite an oligarchy, but it's it's not a monopoly. Mm. But there are certain guilds, like the legal field. Mm -hmm. There is one entity that basically manages the uh, provision of legal services, and it's not under the guise of the Ministry of Labor or the Ministry of of, of Justice. It's under a, a a similar kind of structure. But that sounds like it's their cultural DNA, in a sense, that that's not going to change. Well, the, certainly the, dis, the dispatch of Jay Zenchu asks a direct political question. Who's going to nominate the candidate for the agricultural interests among the senators? Because in the House of Councilors... It's very powerful there, isn't it? The, the, each industry has its senator. Mm -hmm. You know, there is the postmaster's senator. There is the dentist's senator. They actually have two dentist senators. The doctor's senator. And until now and nobody's talked about this, J.A. Zenchu has always picked the farmer's senator mm -hmm. and provided the name to the LDP, and the LDP said, thank you, this person is our candidate now. That function, where does that go? And does and if that function isn't taken up by somebody, then I will say to myself, this is for real, because mm -hmm. there is no senator from farming. And that's the, where you can see there's a direct data point you can say, these people no longer have power because they don't have their person in the diet. Thank you. Well, okay, with that, I'd like to draw this discussion to a close. Please respond or contribute by sending your comments to comments at tokyoonfire.com or use the hashtag tokyoonfire to get your comments to us. Next week, we'll take a look at those and address those on air. Finally, please don't forget that uh, the automatic downloads of this weekly podcast are available with the click of a button on iTunes. The video portion is available on YouTube, also under the outrageously inflammatory Tokyo on Fire. My name is Timothy Langley. Thank you for joining us today.